Tonight we continue our study of the epistle, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We're nearing the end of this great epistle, a four-chapter epistle that contains beautiful, beautiful sentiments from uh, the Apostle Paul to the church that he loved and appreciated so very, very much, a church that had indeed uh, helped him time and again, sent to relieve his physical needs time and again, had been a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul in his work in the kingdom from the time that he first landed at the seaport city there that you see on the screen, Neapolis, which is today called Kavala. That's where the uh, gospel began ultimately on European soil to be preached for the first time after landing at Neapolis and traveling the short distance by the Ignatian uh, Way, the great Roman road to Philippi. Uh, we find from Acts chapter 16 that the Apostle Paul and those who were accompanying him uh, started the kingdom of God at that location. Lydia being the first convert in her household and then the Philippian jailer, and then uh, others, obviously, who obeyed the gospel of Christ and became a faithful uh, congregation, the recipients of this beautiful epistle, uh, which for as long as time stands will instruct and encourage all who will read it, and it will benefit greatly those who will follow its precepts. One of which, a very important one, is seen in the verse with which we begin tonight, as we look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And this is an admonition that truly, uh, if all of us could uh, follow it perfectly, then it, it would be a tremendous stress reliever, wouldn't it? Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. This is an admonition that is very similar to the one that the Lord gave in the great Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, as a part of that sermon, remember in verse 25 beginning, the Lord said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, as the New King James renders it, uh, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then the Lord goes on in that great section of that greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived to illustrate uh, the point by talking about the birds of the air and uh, the lilies of the field. And if God indeed takes care of them, will he not also take care of you? Are you not of more value than they? Well, the Apostle Paul echoes that beautiful sentiment given by the master teacher in that great sermon by reminding the Philippians and thus all of us for all time that we are to be anxious for nothing. That is, not to worry. I think the King James says, be careful for nothing. But the word careful there, as it is translated, doesn't mean be don't be concerned about things. Don't be overly concerned. Don't be overly careful. In other words, don't worry. Don't be anxious. There's a difference between uh, anxiety and concern. And anxiety is, um, is a negative thing, while genuine concern is certainly uh, not only a positive thing, but it is something that is enjoined upon us as Christians. Uh, we are to be concerned. We are to have deep care and concern for a great many uh, things, as a matter of fact. I think about the Apostle Paul's uh, statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he enumerated there 
the various things that he had uh, endured uh, as an apostle of Christ. And he concludes that list at verse 28 by saying, or by writing, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. The Apostle Paul, the same one who says here to us, be anxious for nothing, spoke of his own deep concern for the churches. Therefore, we must distinguish between deep concern, which we are not only allowed to have, but actually should have, and the needless anxiety or the needless worry about things that we should not be overly concerned about. And the Lord, in the great Sermon on the Mount, as we've already alluded to, made it clear to us that if we seek first, Matthew 6, 33, if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things that He's talked about there will be added to us. And so, we are to be concerned, we are to provide. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, If a man will not provide for his own household, he is he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Worse than an infidel. So obviously we're to provide for our families. We are to be concerned about uh, that provision for our families. We are to uh, certainly be concerned about the Lord's church, about spiritual matters. We're to do all that we can to advance the, the cause of Christ. But by the same token, there are things that are needless worries and anxieties about which we are not to be involved or in which we are not to be involved. So, be anxious for nothing. The contrast between anxiety and genuine concern obviously needs to be understood. But what is the contrast? While you're not to be anxious for anything, what are you to do instead? Instead of being needlessly anxious over things about which you should not be anxious, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It simply reminds us, this statement does, I think, of what Peter, another of the apostles, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 7, where he wrote, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. For you. How do we cast our care upon God? How do we cast our care upon the Godhead, upon God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? We do that to a great extent through our prayer life, do we not? That's how we, that's how we communicate uh, with the God of heaven is through prayer. And the Apostle Paul uh, certainly makes that abundantly clear here and points out the importance of of prayer. Prayer, perhaps a more generic term, supplication, a little more specific, expressing a specific need, and then a request, perhaps even uh, getting even more specific. There seems to be here in his statements a, a progression from the more general prayer term to the specific request. In other words, we need to be able to pray about anything and everything that is of concern and that is proper uh, to pray for by prayer, in everything by prayer and supplication. But notice what undergirds every petition that we make to the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving undergirds everything. Because there is always something for which we can be grateful 
to the God of heaven regardless of what our circumstances are. In Psalm chapter 68 and verse 19, there's a passage that I think ties in here. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Isn't that a great statement? Blessed be the Lord who what? Who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Well, the greatest benefit with which we are loaded daily, if you think about it, is our salvation. If indeed we are in Christ, if indeed we are walking in the light as God is in the light, we have that fellowship, as John writes in 1 John 1, with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, does keep on cleansing, that's the idea there, keeps on cleansing us from sin. What a blessing. What a daily benefit. If we couldn't think of any other benefit other than that one, that would be a load, would it not? A load of benefits. The salvation that is ours in Christ. But there's so many specific benefits about which we can think and for which we can be and should be grateful. And so everything, everything in our prayer life is to be permeated or undergirded with an attitude and an expression of thanksgiving. And with that attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude to God, let your request be made, to God, be made known to God. And what will be the result? Of that. Verse 7. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a statement. The peace of God. The peace of God from the God of peace. When we look down at verse 9 in a few moments. We'll read this statement. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Here in verse 7, it's the peace of God. Verse 9 remains, reminds us that he is the God of peace. And so we can experience and embrace and receive and have perpetually the peace of God from the God of peace. But think with me for a moment about this peace. The peace of God and what is said about it right here in this context. Just very briefly, this is a sermon in itself really, but just to simply uh, highlight, it is perpetuated by prayer, the peace of God is. In other words, how do we, how do we maintain that peace? Are you at peace after you have gone to God in prayer and opened your heart to Him? And uh, can you pillow your head in peace at night after you have poured out your heart to God in prayer as a Christian? Well, certainly you can. And you do that perpetually. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. The peace of God is perpetuated by prayer. And this text also reminds us that it passes all understanding. It passes all understanding, and that is... The world especially cannot understand this peace because the world outside of Christ does not possess this peace. And when we think about the peace that passes or surpasses all understanding, 
It's not a peace that is a secession from hostility. We know that. But it's the kind of peace that Jesus spoke to his despondent disciples about on the occasion of his imminent departure from them as they anticipated the fact that he was going to leave them. And what did he say to them, among other things, on that occasion? In John chapters 14, 15, and 16. At John 14, 27, he said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When we have the peace of God that's perpetuated by prayer that passes all understanding, it does protect the heart. It does protect the heart. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be prayed. In this context, Paul says, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And that word guard is, is a military term, like a soldier guarding a perimeter, a soldier guarding something that he's been assigned to guard, the peace will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God. What a statement. What a promise. What a promise. A promise that hopefully all of us here tonight who are Christians have embraced and received. And therefore, we understand more than the world ever can understand about the kind of peace about, peace about which... Paul writes and about which Jesus spoke in John 14, 27. And of course, as John 14, 27 reminds us, that peace is provided by whom? The Prince of Peace, as Isaiah the prophet refers to him among those other names that he gives in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Among those, the Prince of Peace. The peace of God is provided by the Prince of Peace. But to whom does it belong? It belongs to those who are pure in heart. That's verse 7, the latter part. Will guard your hearts. What kind of hearts? The hearts that are purified by obedience to the gospel of Christ Jesus, who are praying through Christ Jesus. It will provide peace to the pure in heart and closely associated with that, the practitioners of righteousness. In fact, you can't be among the pure in heart if you're not a practitioner of righteousness. Those who are doing right. Those who are doing right. That really takes us down to verse 9, to which we'll get in a moment, when he writes, the things which you learned and received and saw and heard in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. When we look down at verse 9, it reminds us that the peace of God belongs to those who are the practitioners of righteousness. That is, those who are doing the things that are commanded by God. And we'll look more at that in just a moment. The peace of God perpetuated by prayer that passes all understanding, protects the heart and mind, is provided by the Prince of Peace to those who are pure in heart, having been purified by obedience to the gospel and who are continuing to practice righteousness and to think about the things that they should be thinking about. And that brings us to verse 8, 
where Paul writes, finally, brethren, literally for the rest, for the rest that I am going to say, and he's nearing the conclusion of this great epistle, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, occasionally let these things come to your mind. <laughs> no. Meditate. Meditate on these things. Well, think with me briefly about these statements. They begin where we would expect them to begin, the list does, with the things which are true. Because truth really is the foundation for everything that we should be thinking about. If you don't begin, if you don't begin with truth, then you have begun on a faulty foundation. And you can spend all the time in the world thinking about things that are lovely and, and other things that may be good and positive, but if they're separated and divorced from truth, then you have nothing, really. It's all just touchy-feely kind of uh, emotional uh, types of endeavors. Truth is basic. Truth is absolutely essential to our mind. And we must be devoted to that truth. Remember Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, for his apostles, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. In John 8, 32, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that truth is God's word. And so, whatever things are true, and then as the New King James renders it, whatever things are noble. The word is translated in some cases uh, honest. But it's the word that is translated in 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 11 in the qualifications of elders and deacons and also in Titus 2 and verse 2 as reverent. It's the idea of dignity, that which is worthy of, uh, of being considered as dignified and uh, reverential attitudes toward those things that are uh, honorable. And then whatever things are just. And the word just there is from the word from which the word righteous comes so many times. The idea of being righteous, especially just in terms of our dealings not only with God, but our dealings with each other. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, which is a form of the word from which we get the word holy in Scripture. Thinking about those things that are set apart for God's use, that are holy, not worldly, and not being worldly-minded, but just the opposite of that. And whatever things are are lovely, whatever things are of good report, well-sounding, literally, is the idea of the good report there. Most of these are fairly self-explanatory, aren't they? But you think about the kind of person that you'd prefer to be around most of the time. Wouldn't this be that person? The person who has committed himself or herself to not just occasionally thinking about a good thing or two or, or being just every now and then, but one who is meditating, meditating, continually focusing attention on things that are true, 
and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report. And Paul says, if there is any virtue, moral excellence is the idea here. If there's anything that is morally excellent, and he's not doubting there is, since there is, obviously, a moral standard, since there is a standard of moral excellence, and since there are things that are indeed praiseworthy, he's not doubting that here, then meditate. And the word meditates in that tense that keep, means keep on keeping on. Keep on meditating. Keep on meditating on these things continually. Well, the best way I know to do that is to spend a lot of time continually with this book. Because in this book, you find all of these things. You find the truth. You find that which is noble, dignified, honorable, reverent. You find the things that are pure and lovely and good report. You find that standard of moral excellence and all things that are praiseworthy. Therefore, to carry out Paul's admonition. I believe it's impossible to do it without spending a great deal of time meditating upon the Word of God. And then Paul adds in the final verse at which we look tonight, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And so we have gone from the peace of God in verse 7 to the God of peace who is mentioned here in verse 9. He is called many things. But here, the beautiful attribute that is emphasized by the Apostle Paul is that he is the author of peace. He's the God of peace. He is the God the only God, obviously, who can bring to man peace. Peace with himself, reconciliation, and peace with each other. And how is that accomplished? Paul here tells the Philippians it is accomplished by doing, by doing the things that you have learned from me, because I have given them to you by inspiration, that you've received, that you have embraced, that you have made your own. You haven't just learned, but you have received them. They are part of you. You've heard them. And something vitally important, the things you have seen in me when I have been with you, not only what I've written to you, not only what I've said to you, what I've taught you and preached to you publicly and privately, but what I have demonstrated to you by my own life when I've been among you, you emulate these things. Was that some sort of arrogant, braggadocious statement? No, not at all. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11:1, 1, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. You can imitate me, he said, as long as I'm imitating Christ. And any of us should be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. You tell me that there's anything that even approaches the degree of comfort that is derived from the knowledge that the God of peace is with you.
Is there anything that could be as comforting as the knowledge that the God of peace is with you tonight? Nothing should be as comforting. And yet all we need to do to know that the God of peace is with us is to follow the teachings that the God of peace has revealed and to be reconciled to the God of peace in the only way that the God of peace has made that possible, and that's through the Prince of Peace, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace without Christ, but you cannot have Christ without obedience to Christ. By a belief in Jesus as the Christ, John 8, 24, believe that I am He or die in your sins. By a true repentance of that sin, that is a change of mind about that sin, Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, Jesus said, you will all likewise perish. And then to confess sweetly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 10, 32, Romans 10, 9 and 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto in the direction of salvation. And then completing that obedience by being buried in water where the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. For Jesus put it so simply, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16. It is then and only then, despite tragically the dominant teaching in the religious world to the contrary, it is then upon rising from the watery grave of baptism, then and only then, that one can truly say, that the God of peace is with him. Because then, and only then, have we complied with the plan that brings about that peace, that reconciliation of sinful man back to a sinless God through the sinless sacrifice that Jesus so lovingly made on Calvary and our willingness to meet the conditions that he who died there has set haven't done that we plead with you to do so tonight and if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child and repentance confession of sin that needs to be confessed in a public way we plead with you to come now as we stand and as we sing